to note, this is not financial advice. We are not promoting it. We're just curious and want to learn more. Hope you enjoy. Cheers. If your effective tax rate is 100%, then you are by definition a slave. Everything that you do, all the products of your labor, all the sweat of your brow, all the every ounce of energy you expend to create anything of value in the world is taken from you, right? 100% taxation. That's literally how you define a slave. There's no other way to define it, actually. So if your effective tax rate is 0% on the other end of the spectrum, then you're fully sovereign. You have the authority to act as you see fit. You keep all the fruits of your labor. You are totally free. So ask yourself today, what is your effective tax rate? If you're in the West, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 40%, depending on your income bracket. Well, that's what percentage of a slave you are. Hello. Hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Oh, that, uh, can I do that with a little more energy? Okay, good. Yeah. Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. That was, that was all right. Yeah, this is International Women's Day. We would firstly like to say a massive tribute to womankind. We need yeah. more. This might not go out on International Women's Day. No, but Day, today though, is. But it's still but, nice to say But it. today, I, I understand that. When we just, recorded it. Yeah, it exactly. Yeah, it is. So, um, so a tribute to all the wonderful women in our life and in everyone's life. Maybe let's take a moment. As a woman, I will like to speak. Okay. <laughs> I've had a very profound day so far. Highly charged, highly intellectually charged. I've taken two naps. <laughs> <laughs> I've only had one. <laughs> two naps in our friend Sam's bed. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Sam is our friend who uh, we've been using his lovely apartment to uh, as our temporary office. And it happens to have a very nice big double bed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was my... Uh, profound experience but one thing i noticed what do you do when you if you take it go for a nap do you kind of wake up in the same way you'd wake up if you were waking up in the morning like i kind yeah. of automatically look at my phone do i have a message end up going on instagram and no. get up no uh i usually wake up like feeling like there's a bit more light like i feel like ah oh, yay it's a bit more walt disney like, you know, I probably needed a nap because it was a bit grey and a bit like, you know, metaphorically speaking, like the day had got a little bit grey and there was a little bit of a humdrum, the machine had got in on me. And then I go for a nap and then I wake up and, oh, yay, I'm back. Saturation is full. The light's looking beautiful. I can hear the birds again. Woohoo! You know, that there's a bit more hope for the day. Like, and that's what happens to me. And I'm, I just feel like then I'm kind of like... I just like to stay asleep then. I'm like, oh God, no, I have to get up now. <laughs> I've been making a conscious effort now when I do look at my phone to stay off social media. Yeah, I don't look at it. That's something that I'm really making a conscious You've effort. you very good at the old uh, reel and TikTok videos though. Oh yeah, I'm having fun with that. But <laughs> yeah. that's consciously going into create content. Oh. Whereas, but to, but to go and just randomly, mindlessly troll through something, I'm really trying nice. to abstain. Yeah, and I know when my mental capacity is at its lowest, that's when I'm just sucked yeah. in. <laughs> Pretty pictures, wow! Pretty pictures and people doing funny stuff. Cool. <laughs> so, question: We're getting on a flight tomorrow, yeah. and what kind of what what do you normally bring with you on a flight? Like, do you, are you someone who downloads music to listen to music? Do you go go for a nap? You bring your little like i eye mask one, one thing I always do is I normally have about 30,000 photos on my phone and I always see planes as an opportunity to delete oh, yeah. photos and kind of you know that kind of like digital cleansing and that kind of minimization I always see that as like it's highly inefficient having these photos that you're never going to use so like get rid of them 
So that's just, something that I try just to Just stop automatically downloading photos on WhatsApp. That like literally cuts oh, yeah, your photos by like yeah, 60% because there's so many coming groups and things. That was my top tip to myself. <laughs> um, but on planes, uh, I usually find they're just an amazing way for my mind to run wild. Like I find my head is just full of thoughts and ideas and dreams and I'll be writing things and pondering things and pontificating or else I'll just be falling asleep. One of the other, one extreme. I automatically like, fall asleep. It doesn't matter. Now it sounds like I'm a really sleepy person. <laughs> really? My voice. My voice doesn't help. I recently had a cold. Thank you very much. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Automatically, when I'm on a plane, same with long car journeys. I don't know. I I li- it's like I should never drive for a long period of time because I get tired and I fall asleep. Wow. Uh, yeah. No. Sarah, sleepy it's Sarah. It's like I'm being cradled. Like rocking, yeah, rocking in the womb, and I just like. <laughs> <laughs> wow. lovely I oh. love flights I look forward to them I genuinely do I love sitting there and just having that yeah. space uh, one thing which I used to love was when you'd go on those 24 hour bus journeys this is now 20 years ago when I'd go on a 24 hour bus journey like in South America or whatever I'd love it because after about 5 or 6 hours people had dropped their veil of kind of like I'm cool or I'm someone else and people would be farting and burping and just like being normal, like like kids in a playground, like adults become that. And I love that. It's the same on long haul flights that people, their guard eventually drops and they just become, you know, everyone's like kids again as opposed and to... And burping. <laughs> well, no, I just use that, that, that as, a, as an analogy for people drop their guard and kind of drop that performance side of ourselves. And I think when we reach that stage, I find the connection is so much more authentic yeah. because we're vulnerable and things. But uh, okay, should we talk about the podcast now? Yeah, this one's really exciting. And this one feels like kind of a brave step into the unknown. Um, this is something that's interested at least me personally for who, a number of years. Uh, Steve, this is Stephen's voice here coming from Stephen's mouth um, and connected to Stephen's brain. But for many years, I've been fascinated with the topic of cryptocurrencies just largely because people were talking about it and I didn't know what the hell it was. I remember Fumble. back curiosity more so just absolute curiosity i remember years ago we were we used to do make juices and smoothies at the tech conference known as um the web Something. summit and founders and i remember hearing them talk about blockchain i remember uh, martin kadair a cool kind of clever guy in our town he was kind of i remember having good conversations how we were going to like get the blockchain going on our credit card machines we we're going to take payment to cryptocurrencies we we're all excited and it didn't happen uh, but recently I got really interested and curious and today's conversation is our first step into this area. And for many people, this is quite a strange topic, a topic that might necessarily intersect with health, with well-being. But my first question, I really tried to address that and to try to bring it in as a segue from health into this greater field of economics. So who are we interviewing, We're going to interview Robert Breedlove. Robert Breedlove um has a degree in financing finance and business. He was a CFO for a number of years. He was a CEO of a company, CFO meaning um, a... Chief financial officer. Yeah, and CEO. He's now a serious kind of character in the crypto space where he is, he's authored a book called... Uh, thank God for Bitcoin. Uh, he's, he a podcast, he's a f- podcast called What is Money Podcast, which is phenomenal. It's got so much incredible content, literally in that sphere of what is money. But he's uh, he's an incredible voice in terms of Bitcoin and its capacity as a tool for freedom, which sounds crazy. But ultimately, each of us want to be free, sovereign creatures or humans, really. And he is an incredible voice and has an incredible uh, argument and point of view on this. This was... It was a really intellectual, very broad, very dynamic conversation that crossed from anthropology, sociology, philosophy, economics, 
yeah. spirituality. It was beautiful. It yeah, was, and it Steve was... opens it with a bang. Yeah. yeah. Noah's beautiful bang. Okay, great. He goes straight in. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> just wanted to go deep straight away. So anyway, yeah, he's did. amazing. It's a great conversation. I really, even if the, the, the idea of listening to something like this seems strange, trust us, it's really fascinating. And if you can bear with us, yeah, it really opens up and really drills home a very important message at the end. Um, and just before we kind of start the podcast, I wanted to tell you about and really thank everyone who's pre-ordered our new book. It's called The Veg Box. It's out in June. We've taken the 10 most popular veg in the UK and Ireland. We've done them 10 ways using 10 ingredients. It's really simple, 10 ingredients or less. It's really simple, practical, user-friendly book that's helping you to lose, uh, waste less and cook more delicious dinners really yeah because i think the world at large needs us all to consume more plant-based food so this hopefully is part of the solution so anyway link down below in the show notes and uh without further ado we give you the wonderful robert breedlove um okay i want to kick it off with and this one i was just thinking about i don't know if it makes a great intro but it was one that excited me okay and it's kind of very relevant to our audience is the intersection between freedom health and currency really like, I know that's very broad and there's no one answer to it. They're like three random words that seemingly have no correlation. That seemingly do, but it's often like health is often disconnected from economics and it's often freedom is kind of something that, you know, we're, we're often believed if you have enough wealth, suddenly you have more options. And if you have more options, theoretically, you're more free. And I just want, wanted mm. to understand how you see the intersection between sovereignty or freedom, health and finances or economics or currency. Lightweight, Let me make sure I have the three. So you said freedom, health, and what was the third one? Sorry? Uh, currency. currency or economics or... Currency, economic or interaction. Money, I guess. That's okay. a really light. Fluffy Sorry, one I didn't start with a light, Steve. fluffy one, but I just, <laughs> I was, I was, okay, I was out running. I was listening to you talking about Lex Friedman, and I was trying to think about this is fascinating. I was so lit up by it, and I was running across my wife's Polish, and we were running across this, this big, massive potato field, and I was listening to you, and I was just excited. The adrenaline was pumping, and I was like, I really want to ask Robert this question. So here we go. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, <clears throat> thank you for the lightweight opener. <laughs> the, so I'll start with, you know, my favorite topic, which is freedom itself. Um, and this is, it's complicated because like you said, people tend to think freedom is just optionality. It's like just, you know, the more things that I am able to do, whether these are, you know, skills or abilities or wealth or tools that you possess, or maybe even position within a hierarchy. You know, you basically, you have power, you have certain abilities uh, or options available to you that may not be available to others. And that is a big component of freedom, right? So if we think of the caveman, right, he was essentially totally free. There was no one telling him what to do. Uh, maybe the guy with a bigger stick, he had to fight, you know, for territory, whether whatever, but he lacked options that we take for granted today, like owning a refrigerator, for instance, it's a pretty amazing technological marvel that gives you the option to store food well into the future and not have to go out and fight for your next meal day in, day out, multiple times a day. Um, Caveman also didn't have the option to say fly around the world, you know, that just it flat out was not an option for him. So no matter how much freedom he had uh, in the sense of not being coerced upon, 
he lacked freedom in terms of technological advancement and the optionality that it affords us. So that's a big deal because that is that type of freedom seems to be what humans strive towards. We always want more that, you know, I, I joke that not joke. It's really the human heart is insatiable. It's like a black heart, like a black hole of wants, if you will. That Yeah. Do you think there's an inherent greed within us all that it's just the, the, there's this itch of kind well, of dissatisfaction? But, but I don't almost. know. So the, the word greed, and I used to think this a lot, that it was it was just greed. You know, this is like the 1980s movie, greed is good kind of thing. But I try to draw a line here where we're all driven by individual self-interest. So we're all trying to improve our own station in life day in, day out with every action, by the way. You probably heard me say this on Lex's podcast, but every action we take is an expression of our value, right? We all have a rank ordered set of things we want to do next. And the thing we're doing in the current moment, by definition, is our highest value. It's whatever we've selected from among that hierarchy to do in that moment um, in lieu of you know all other opportunity costs. So human action is an expression of human value. And <clears throat> I think that that type of freedom is something that's, it's not greed per se. I would, so I draw the line between self-interest and greed. And once I'm infringing upon your self-interest, so if I'm trying to, you know, force you to do something for me, right. To beat you over the head and make you go give me your food or give me your territory, whatever. That's where I would draw the line and say, that's greed because that's now one individual self-interest trying to impose itself on another individual's self-interest to accomplish his aims. And I've written a, a lot about this, but I think there's an illusion here. It's like a psychological schism in, in humans that there is this drive towards freedom, like I said, towards optionality. And there's another component of freedom I'll, I'll discuss in a minute. But there's this illusion that you can become more than 100% free. Like it's almost the intrinsic reality of each individual. It's like you're free, you are free. You're all, you have the ability to choose how you respond to your external circumstances, no matter what. Nobody can take away that, that right to choose from you. This is Viktor Frankl, by the way, in Man's Search for Meaning. He called this book. the final human freedom. It's that fundamental gap between your subjective interpretation of the data that your senses are bringing in and the data itself. You always have a gap there to choose. And this is always present, right? You could be in the worst situation. You could be locked up, being tortured, et cetera. Um, that, that fundamental human freedom or the final human freedom can never be taken from you. So I think that pursuing individual self-interest is great, right? That's you as an entrepreneur pursuing profits. That's you as an individual trying to satisfy your wants, trying to you know, establish territory for yourself, build a family, do things you like to do, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to confine that pursuit or circumscribe the bounds of that pursuit within the individual self-interest of others. And this is where something like property becomes very, very, very important. Um, there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down here. I'll try to give the quick explanation of property. No, you're doing great because I came in with a wild question, so I'm sorry, you're but you're doing fabulous. Question. Property is not words. the thing. Here's the important part with property is that it's not the thing itself. It's not the house. It's not the car. It's not the stock certificate. 
is the actual relationship between the owner and that asset. And very importantly, it's the exclusivity of that relationship. So I want to know if I own a house and someone's maintaining this property ledger that says, you know, Robert owns this house, that I have recourse to a legal system. If anyone tries to come into my home and sleep on my couch or whatever, like I can throw them out you know, legally, or I can call someone that will. Um, when someone, so when someone is pursuing their own individual self-interest and it compromises that boundary of private property of someone else, that's when I would argue it becomes greed. You're taking freedom too far, right? You're taking freedom to the point of violating the freedom of others, which could be violating their property or life and liberty as well. So to the, the here's where freedom's so important in constructing our socioeconomic systems. It's like we want to create a world where everyone maximally pursues their individual self-interest within the bounds of everyone else's individual self-interest. So you want each individual working whatever job they want, right? Free to choose what their craft is, free to maximize their profits, right? We have this weird thing in modern culture where we demonize profit, profit-seeking and profit motive. Profits are amazing. Profits are, that tells you when someone's doing a good job. You're rendering a service or product to the market in a way that's economically efficient, right? The cost or the revenue from your outputs is less than the cost of your inputs, which means you're economizing human action for everyone, everyone that's buying your stuff. Otherwise, they wouldn't buy it. So profits are, are very important to this. Um, and the, the net outcome of that pursuit, where you have individuals pursuing their self-interest with strong private property rights, is that we increase aggregate wealth for everyone. Now, you asked about health as well. Yeah, yeah, that was the, so. I'll, yeah. I'll all right. Let me, let me say this first about freedom, then I'll go to health. So, freedom, we have options. That's one big one, right? We're we're economizing human action. We're innovating. We're developing technologies. We're creating new options for ourselves to satisfy our wants. So we go from being the caveman with, you know, just the ability to kind of survey my local territory to being a modern citizen. I can fly around the world in 24 hours. Right, I've got a refrigerator. I've got all these amazing tools that make my life so much easier, give me so many more options. Options are not the only component of freedom, though. That's a very big deal. But what's the other component is just desire itself. I don't necessarily need all the tools and options to be free. I can lower my desires to zero and be free. And this is what monks do. This is what people that try to live lives of... Um, Oh, the word just escaped me, but where you asceticism or asceticism, yes, where you abstain from consumption, you abstain from, you know, all modern luxuries, sex, all these things. So you can, it's managing supply and demand. Ultimately, you can lower your own demand, you can lower your own desire and leave the supply unchanged and you can become very free, right? It can be very freeing to just sit in a monastery and meditate all day. That's one form of freedom. Um, but it's sort of closing the window on economic freedom, which is the optionality I described previously. So now to get into health, this is there's a reason here too. Etymology is always really interesting. Health and wealth are closely related. They have the same etymological root. So health, what is what is health? It's vitality. It's functional body, functional mind. Um, 
the ability to fit yourself to the world in different ways, right? You can adapt to different situations. You can travel, you can read, you know, you've got all these faculties that a normal human is expected to have that allow you to quote unquote succeed in the world, right? You're well-equipped, let's say. You're a fine-tuned machine, whatever analogy you want to use here. Well, that's all well and good. We could say effectively that health then is biological wealth, right? You're given this, and, and it's not just, you're, you're given some of it, right? We're born with eyesight, you know, most of us, and we have reason, we have, most of us have 10 fingers, 10 toes, but a lot of it we also have to work for, right? If you want to be a really good surfer, you're not born with that. You have to go out and you have to train, you have to develop it. Um, same is true for any sport, any form of exercise. And this is where, and I'm writing something about this now, but wealth itself, and again, they have the same etymological root, health and wealth, but wealth is something more like creating <clears throat> this non-biological fitness for yourself. So if I want to dig a hole really well, it doesn't matter what kind of training I do. Like I can train to be a professional hole digger all I want. If I'm not using a good shovel, the guy using the good shovel is going to beat me every day of the week, right? So he's, there's a way to innovate and create tools that allow us to be better fit to our task or our, or the actions we're pursuing that we can't do biologically, right? The guy, again, the guy flying in the plane is always going to outrun the guy, you know, even the fastest track runner in the world on foot. So health and wealth, I think are really interesting. Um, in that they're both necessary to render as much satisfaction from life as possible. You know, you can't enjoy any form of wealth, really, if you're not healthy. Um, but at the same token, if you're super healthy and you just have no wealth at all, then you're not really going to be, you're not going to live life to its fullest unless you're the monk, right? But in terms of optionality, like being able to fly, travel, express your wants, um, experiment with the world, you're going to be very limited without wealth in, in that respect. And then finally, you, you asked about currency, currency or money. You know, money is, there's a lot of answers to the question. And clearly, <laughs> I've You'd be doing that rabbit hole a lot. Very fascinated with the question that is the namesake <clears throat> of the show itself. Um, I've accumulated over 50 answers to that question through both my own research and through uh, conversations with guests. So I'm always a bit stumped, <laughs> which is funny. It's like, hey, the name of your show is What is Money? But when I ask you what is money, like, I have 50 answers to choose from. What's the, what's the, current, what, what's the current one? Say I was sitting right beside you now, Robert, and I had a gun and I put it to your head and I said, Robert, you got to describe the, the thing that just resonates with you most in this moment. It's not like you in can change in next minute. moment. But what, what well, one? For, I'd, probably tell you, I'd probably tell you to go fuck yourself because I don't deal with coercion very well. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. well, well even, even, no even no a, gun to the head, but even, okay. even a common I'll be happy one to is, describe it. Okay, thank you, Robert. <laughs> so it's all right. Through this scope of freedom being both the options available to us, but also our relationship to those options, like how much desire are we really, um, do we really have in our hearts? And then there's wealth, which is helping us 
expand our optionality set. How many options do we have? Well, that's determined by how much wealth we have access to. Um, money, I think, is just you know a lot of different things, but we could say it's just the meta form of wealth or apex form of wealth because it's giving you a call option on anything the market can render, anything, any good or service that the market can provide to you, which is to say any specialization that humans have um, created on earth, right? The, again, right now we're using Zoom software. I'm using a MacBook Pro laptop. I've got this very sophisticated microphone. There's no human on earth that knows how, to, there's no one human that knows how to make any of these things. These are all products of our collective output, the, the collective division of labor. Um, there's a great book on this by Matt Ridley called The Rational Optimist. And if you just read chapter one, he goes into the computer mouse and he describes how there's literally no one on earth that knows how to make this thing. There's no, no human on earth knows how to make this. Zero humans know how to make this. Only a group of humans cooperating, competing in a distributed economic network know how to make this. That's it. Wow. So money is the like vital lubricant that makes that wealth generating machine operate. And if you take money out of the equation and the machine seizes up, there's no more wealth, uh, which leads to a deterioration in health, by the way, because then people are starving. The only reason we have a carrying capacity on this planet of 7.8 billion people or whatever the number is now is because of the market, the division of labor, because we're able to accomplish greater results with less efforts through economization. Um, and then, you know, also taking money out of the equation, you're going to basically evaporate the option set for people. Like you can't, and you can see this, just look at any, any jurisdiction where the currency has been debased sufficiently or even entered into a hyperinflation, trust and cooperation goes to zero, right? You're reduced back to basically barbarity, right? You have to just trust a few people that you can know on a first name basis. And then everyone else, um, is, is a very antagonistic relationship, let's say, without a trusted medium of exchange like money. So yeah, there's a good swing at wow. hitting three yeah, right. yeah. topics. Three wow. random things. Thank you. And uh, no, even, you're quite there, welcome. even there, the last thing you hit off there was kind of about in a state of hyperinflation where an economy kind of falls through the floor. And like certainly in my lifetime, maybe it's only been over the last kind of 10 years, the world seems to become more and more unstable. Maybe it's always been unstable and I'm only aware of it more so because I'm more of a grown up now. Um, and I'm just kind of going that like in these states of hyperinflation and when I think of like we're just through COVID, there's another war, you know, there's the war between Russia and Ukraine, there's more kind of instability and you're kind of going, okay, like hyperinflation and these type of situations seem to be, maybe they've always been kind of common but they seem to be more threatening than I've um, been aware of before, you know, more imminent than I've been at before. And the kind of one of the promises of cryptocurrency is that it's kind of it provides a decentralized kind of medium of transfer of money. You know, it's, it's a decentralized mm. independent to the government. And you kind of go to get if we are to get from this. Currently, we have a, a very kind of top down government controlled monetary system. And to get to a decentralized finance system, which is how I understand it, I'm I'm only 
a complete rookie to cryptocurrency, but it seems that that's the promise of cryptocurrency to decentralize it. And you're kind of going, how do you get there without having to go through these states of hyperinflation and lack of trust and social distress and all these type of things? But you, like, how do you see that playing out? Now, we've gone from one extreme question to a total <laughs> other end. Well, what I would first say is that your feelings of current instability in the world um you're not alone right <laughs> things have been shaken up a lot in the past 24 months we're recording this march 2022 uh, pretty much in the post-covid world it seems like everything has just been thrown up in the air um and people are scrambling you know people are scrambling to find it's like you've been tossed out into the water all of a sudden you're on this familiar land your whole life where you've got at least in the Western world, money that tends to operate well, rule of law that you can reliably depend upon, it's going to be roughly indifferent to you. Um, you know, low enough or invisible enough levels of corruption that they don't seem to directly impact your life. But you know, once COVID hit, and governments essentially use this as carte blanche to do whatever they want at passing, you know, there's a great quote I read that if you Give government the capacity to expand its powers in an emergency, then the government will create emergencies to expand its powers. <laughs> and um, that would have sounded quite conspiracy theorist and or tinfoil hat perhaps five years ago. But over the past 24 months, I mean, I don't think anything's been more evident than um, government overreach. And it's, 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 um, capacity to expand you know there's this government scope creep where no matter what they say they're going to do um they're not it's like having the the wolf guard the chicken coop type of thing right we you give someone a legal monopoly on money and the monopoly on violence such that they can extract wealth from a productive population at their own discretion but they are charged with the responsibility so, so they can violate the property rights of the productive market anytime they want. But their express purpose as government is to preserve the property rights of those productive economic actors. You can see the conflict of interest here, right? <laughs> if my job is to protect you, I'm your armed protection services, services, but I'm the only guy in the room that's armed. Well, then maybe I'm going to turn around and point the gun at you and say, Hey, you need to pay me more or I'm not going to protect you. All right. That's effectively the situation we're in and hyperinflation. You know, we've what's other, this interesting thing about where we're at today. So we have this recency bias where things were stable pre COVID. That's not really the norm historically. If you ever opened a history book, you know, things have tended to be a bit more unpredictable. We've been in kind of this weird interregnum period where post-World War II, under the specter of mutually assured destruction through nuclear warfare, we've had this post-nuclear peace. You know, it's kind of a paradox in a way. It's we're all so terrified of annihilating the species and destroying the planet through our weapons of mass destruction that we've decided we're going to, you know, get along a little more, um, just get along better and, and have less massive armed conflict. That 
stability appears to be cracking now. And I don't know. There's a couple of things in play here. One is we're 50 years into the global fiat currency experiment. You know, we've had many iterations of fiat currency across history, which um, perhaps for your audience, I'll define that. Essentially just a form of money that is accepted and used at the tip of a gun, basically. So instead of you deciding for yourself freely what money works for you um, and transacting in that and saving in that, you instead are using a form of money that I am telling you or you are going to use or else, like or else you go to jail or else you face civil penalties, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, I would argue that that, so these experiments have been tried many, many, many times. The average lifespan of a fiat currency is like 27 years. They all go to zero. All success, all fiat currencies across history basically go to zero. Again, average lifespan, 27 years. The best performing fiat currency in human history is the British pound. It's a, around 320 years old. It's only lost 99.5% of its value in that time. That's the best performer yet. Um, and those are the two, the British pound and the US dollar, that are the, um, the fiat currencies today that are still... You know, clearly it, the U.S. dollar supports can the I U.S. government. Can I interrupt you? Sure. One sec, because I'm sure anyone listening's kind of gone fiat currency an experiment. Do you know the way? Like we, like certainly, my head kind of goes, okay, well, like money. We like in my whole lifetime, there's always been euros, like or pounds or whatever it's been that we've exchanged, and that's been the accepted monetary kind of system which we've used. And when you describe it as an experiment of seventy years or whatnot, twenty-seven years, really. Is the average lifespan? Yeah, the average lifespan, or that this is an experiment. Yeah, fifty years like, post nineteen seventy one is global fiat currency experiment. We've never had fiat currency coordinated at this scale. And by that, you're kind of saying that it's po in the Nixon kind of regime when they kind of um, un separated from separated gold. from gold, separated the currency from gold. Is that the kind of start of this experiment? Correct. So post World War II, we had the Bretton Woods Conference where the United States was victorious essentially right we declared ourselves victorious we also held the most gold which is very important so gold is geopolitical prime money right if a, one country goes to another country today and conquers them they're not going to demand tribute be paid in paper or special drawing rights they want gold right even today there's rumors of, of russia and china they'll start to demand settlement in gold for um oil and, and things like that so Post-1971 world, we had U.S. emerge victorious. It had the most gold, which meant it was the biggest dog in the heap. So we rewrote the banking rules at Bretton Woods, saying that the U.S. dollar would be pegged to gold. All of the national currencies would be pegged to the U.S. dollar. This gave the United States the infamous exorbitant privilege, as it's been called, where we can just print dollars, which, again, they're not even printed. They're just database, electronic database entries. We can export these dollars to the world and the, and the world will send us goods and services. So through this legal monopoly and this Bretton Wood um, construction, we basically gained an infinite call option on global wealth. We can just keep exporting these dollars that cost us zero to produce and importing goods and services that, that have real costs to produce. So that broke down in 1971. Nixon separated. He closed the gold window. There were, uh, you know, predictably, the United States was producing more dollars than it had gold reserves to justify. 
And when enough nations realized that uh, the United States was engaged in this deficit spending, they started to call the bluff of the United States saying, hey, all these dollars you've been sending me, I want to redeem them for gold now. Because again, gold is actual money. It's not just a, a claim to money. You could think of the dollar as credit and um, gold is like settlement of that, of that debt. When enough, I think it was Germany that finally tried to repatriate some gold from the U.S., that that's what triggered the Nixon shock. And he said, no more gold redemptions. We're going to temporarily move to a fiat currency standard where it's just, uh, again, you know, paper transacted in because I said so. And because all other currencies in the world were pegged to the dollar, this moved the entire world onto this um, fiat currency experiment. And again, we've had these locally across history they've all failed they all end in hyperinflation but we've never had this global coordinated fiat currency experiment where all major economies in the world are dominated by a central bank they're dominated by a fiat currency and then all of those central banks are basically depreciating their currencies in tandem at the same time so all of the central banks of the world are printing money and taxing their population via inflation um but the United States in particular, you know, we've got 300 million people in the U.S., but there's four and a half billion dollar users, dollar users worldwide. So the, the number one export of the United States is the dollar and inflation. Wow. And, you know, this has had it's had other consequences, too. It's not they call it the exorbitant privilege, but it's really damaged the United States, too. It's financialized our economy. We've offshored a lot of our labor, a lot of our critical industry. And, and I just wondered so, there, sorry to, to get you off, I was going to say like that, so, so we've had this experiment, this kind of the largest running experiment of fiat currency that it's lasted the longest time. And I'm kind of going, okay, like your perspective on it is fresh. I've never heard that, that it's been an experiment because it's just perceived as this is the way that things are always done and it's always kind of gone like this. And I'm kind of going like, like why, where do you see this going? Where do you see this going? And why do we need a new money? You know, can we just fix the old money or is it just rotten to its core, the old system? No, so yeah, I mean, you're hitting a good point here. And that's what I was trying to say earlier is that we have this recency bias, each of us, where especially in the West, again, why, why, why would I worry about money? I mean, my dollars work. I can open a bank account relatively easily. I can send money around. Uh, I haven't had any US dollar hyperinflation in my life. So what am I worried about? But this is a... You know, I'm 36 years old. So this 50 year experiment, I was born into it. You know, I just, I have no, there's nothing in the scope of my experience that would tell me otherwise that the dollar would stop working at any time. However, once I start to open some monetary history books and get outside of the scope of my own personal experience, or just look around at what's going on in the world today, especially the past two years. Um, great example was the Freedom Convoy in Canada right? Peaceful protesters having their bank accounts frozen and proclaimed to be terrorists. Like this is the level of how much we've devolved where we're now <laughs> looking at citizens in a quote unquote liberal democracy weighted, rated, I think Canada was rated number five in the global liberal democracy index. And then their, their PM comes out and declares peaceful protesters to be terrorists and seizes their bank accounts and the world, you know, just kind of stands by and watches. This, so we have this recency bias about the money. We think it always works, but clearly it doesn't. We know that abundantly clear now. 
We have to remember too that it's a 50-year fiat currency experiment on a 5,000-year plus history of money. So that's why I say it's extremely recent. All right, this is, this is a very recent phenomenon. And to answer the question, what do we do about it? Or why is that currency doesn't work? Fiat doesn't work. It's going to zero. Every fiat currency in the world is going to zero, just like every fiat currency across all of human history has always and gone that's to zero. Due, due to inflation. Well, yes, it's due to excessive debasement. So inflation is a very muddied term. People think CPI, Consumer uh, Purchasing Index, is inflation. That's not true. I define inflation specifically as the arbitrary expansion of a money supply under the aegis of a legal monopoly. So when there's one, any, and this is legal monopolies themselves are inherently evil. It's basically me establishing a business and then when you try to compete with my business, I put you in jail or shut you down or commit violence on you. I mean, that's what a legal monopoly is. There is no, there's no justification for it whatsoever. It's straight evil, yet it is at the heart of every modern economy today. So we have a central bank, which is a legal monopoly, which is measure number five from Marx's 1848 manifesto of the Communist Party, that the state must have central monopoly on cash and credit to exercise Marxism. So we, even in the US where we pride ourselves on being free market capitalists, we have a Marxist institution at the heart of the economy called the central bank. And yet no one, I, and it blows my mind. I'm like, how is this fucking possible that we have this and no one talks about it or thinks about it? And the realization I've had is that people just don't understand money. They have no idea what money is. They have no idea how it works. We think more about it we think more through money than we do about money. So people always, you know, oh, what I'm going to do today? How I'm going to make money? What, what, how I'm going to plan my vacation? I'm going to negotiate this deal. Like we're talking in dollars, but we never take the step back and take off the glasses and say, what are these dollars I'm examining the world through? What are these? And that's the critical piece because when you start to see that fiat is just that, fiat is this idea of doing something because a human said so. Right. It's you sack. I'm abdicating my freedom to another. Whoever's telling me what to do and I'm accepting them, accepting that that imposition and not deciding for myself what I want to do out of my own self-interest. I said earlier that the the person trying to impose that fiat is operating under the illusion that they can be more than 100 percent free. Right. They think they can be 120 percent free, if you will. If I can just be the top dog and enslave a few people to do what I said, then I'm going to be extra free. And that's sort of true in a sense, and that you can rob these people and like enrich yourself unfavor or unfairly, let's say, but it is an unsustainable model, right? You know this, you know this fully well, especially if you, if you have a household with kids, right? You're, you govern your kids by fiat, right? It's like, don't do that because I said so. And that's important and necessary as humans are developing and developing reason and learning about the world. But your ultimate aim for your kids is not for them to do what you said so their whole life, right? You hope they grow into reasonable adults, autonomous adults that can do and deal with the world as they see fit. Yet statism is a model that takes that, that fiat paradigm that we have to use with children and tries to apply it on adults effectively. Nice so there's adults analogy. telling other adults what they have to do for their safety, for their best interest. You know, every fucking thing the government says is for your safety, every single thing. And if that doesn't get your alarm bells going off at this point, 
especially after the past 24 months, I don't think there's much hope for you. And even, even, so, can I say, can I say one thing? Steven's twitching today. I was just going to say that, uh, you were kind of saying that money, a lot of people don't really understand the underlying principles of money. We kind of understand how to use it and we're very focused on making it. But I'm kind of going, what are some of the, the building blocks that people need knocked down to properly understand what money is? I, you know, a lot of ways to think about money. I think the first thing to realize is that contrary to popular misconception, money is not a product of government. Government does not originate money. That's not how this works. Although clearly that's what we would all think with the paper in our pockets and in God we trust and the nice dead president's faces on there. Like it seems very symbolically uh, if not actually intertwined with the origin of money, but it's not at all the case. Money, quite simply, like once human beings start to trade, whatever becomes the most liquid asset or the most traded asset in that flurry of things being traded, by definition, is money. So as I go out into the world and I'm, it could be anything, right? Say I'm a telescope maker and I'm trying to get I'm trying to get a luxury automobile, something like that. They're both kind of obscure things. As a telescope maker wanting a luxury automobile, I'll trade that telescope for oranges, even if I don't want the oranges, if I know the guy that wants that has the automobile will trade the automobile for oranges. And even if he wants, if I know those oranges are tradable for grapes and then the guy that has the car wants the grapes, I'll trade the telescope for the oranges and for the grapes just to get the car. So there's this, this ratcheting up process of certain assets becoming more liquid than others. And that the asset that's selected for that purpose, this is something I've, I've repeated a lot. There's basically five properties we're looking for in money, which is divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. So the asset that rises to the top of that heap tends to best exhibit those five properties. And that asset, that most tradable, most liquid asset in the world is money. Right? It's a naturally emergent free market phenomenon. It has nothing to do with government at all. Nothing. But government, it being the ultimate instrument of power, because now you have one asset that's the most tradable, which means it can be redeemed for any other asset. Right, Human time, the products of human time, services, knowledge, anything that money can buy, anything the market can bear, money can buy. Government seizes on that. Government seizes on that always because... Government is a monopoly on violence. So if government wants to control people with less overt means, right, it's very, it's very energy inefficient to go door to door, put a gun to citizens' heads, say, hey, pay me this or else, right? There's a lot of cost and risk associated with that tax collection process. It's much easier if I can just centralize custody of the money or centralize a monopoly on the money and then print new money for myself. And... Uh, externalize the inflation on the people. So that's a way to tax people invisibly. And this, you know, today we do this with central bank ledger entries, but a thousand years ago, we used to do this with coin clipping. So the local tyrant would collect all the coins, melt them down, reissue them at the same face value, but would have clipped off a little bit from each coin such that he took, basically stole via inflation, right? He's inflating the supply of the coinage, but keeping the residual metal content for himself. That's the same thing as modern inflation in a different form. It's just theft, right? That's all it is. So 
what and the second part of your question is what can we do about that yeah the answer is like a good question there's only one answer to this whole thing and that's bitcoin um you could make an argument what, what about what about other cryptocurrencies or is it i know you're a bitcoin maximalist or freedom maximalist well here's the deal again money we know that money exhibits a winner take all network effect that's what gold is right so what's another way to say this so and, and by that you mean like the kind of dominant species you know controls the shots that type of thing is in the currency that's most used is well here's the, the deal that... let's get back to what money is money another definition a technology or device for expressing or moving value across space and time so it's a tool with really one purpose. Like I want to be able to move economic value, which we could equally say is this call option on wealth. I want to be able to move this across space and across time. So if I want to go buy, if I'm in Alaska and I want to go buy a house in Tennessee, you know, I need to be able to move the money across space to buy the other form of wealth in another place. Similarly, I need to be able to hold the money across time, knowing that it's purchasing power or it's caught the, the amount of wealth that it can lay claim to will at least be consistent across time, if not, if not grow. So if money is a device for moving value across space and time, um, I'm sorry, I've diverged again from the question. What was the now question I'm pretty, trying to get to? The question was kind of why? Like was like why like is it oh why not other cryptocurrencies sorry yeah okay money is a single purpose tech right you just want it to be able to move value across space and time there's no the only reason this is why people get hung up on other cryptocurrencies they think oh there's 200 nations in the world there's 200 national currencies why wouldn't there be a bunch of cryptocurrencies that's not how money works right we want the the value of money is how many people in this network will accept it in exchange what is the liquidity of this money and this is not something you ever want the second best you never want the second best money just like you never want the second best physical security now i tweeted this out the other day it's if you if you're going into a gunfight no one wants the second best bulletproof vest right again if health is wealth right you want to pr maximally protect your health I don't want to do the second best thing. I don't want to do the second best experimental treatment for some disease. Like you want always the best for your health, right? Well, it turns out you want the best for your wealth too. So you want the deepest, safest, most liquid monetary network in the world to safeguard your purchasing power. And your purchasing power, again, is just your share of the global capital stock. So that's why there's this game theoretic process where people are constantly experimenting with different types of money to see what works. But the one which, first of all, exhibits those four, first four properties really well, divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability. But then where it really hinges on is scarcity. Which one of these assets that I've experimented with as money will faithfully retain integrity of supply, which is to say that the supply of this money cannot be arbitrarily debased by someone else, which is to also say that the supply of the asset or commodity in question is most difficult to change, right? It, it costs something to change the supply. And this is why we got gold, right? Gold is the commodity on earth, the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, 
asset in the world that's also most resistant to supply manipulations. Like no matter how much time and energy we allocate towards gold production, we can only increase its supply as a factor or its new supply as a factor of its old supply by like 2% per year. So this meant that no matter what any human in the world did, no matter what opinion, what war, what law, nobody could inflate the holders of gold by more than 2% per year. You could not steal more than 2% per year um, from gold holders due to the restrictions imposed by, upon us by nature itself, right? You can't do anything about it. No one knew how to make gold cost effectively in a lab. So you have to go out and dig it up. You can only dig up enough to inflate the supply by 2% a year. So if I'm holding my wealth in gold, I know that I'm secured against everyone's opinion. I don't have to trust anyone, right? I can just hold the gold. And I know I'm not going to get deemed any more than 2% per year based on history. So that's like kind of a somewhat complicated argument, I guess. If you've never thought in these terms of money, you've never thought of game theory, you've never thought of network effects. But if you're familiar with the internet, like you know how these things work, right? We, we all use HTTP protocol today, right? It's the, the, the market converged on a protocol. And that protocol got ossified into the internet protocol suite. And it's part of this stack that we all use today, HTTP, TCP, IP, et cetera. Once that internet protocol ossifies, people don't really deviate from it because it's what everyone else uses, right? This is the network effect. Um, and so with Bitcoin, I think it's basically taken the economic properties of gold and it's combined them with this universal engine of exchange we call the internet. And it's fused them into one thing that we're all struggling to describe here, the internet of money, digital gold, all these useful analogies that are great, but don't fully encapsulate what Bitcoin represents. That is, this is what we've been working towards, right? We wanted an asset that we could move around easily, safely, and that we knew had a had the greatest certainty of supply. And that's what Bitcoin is, right? It's pure digital information. You can move it at the speed of light. You can secure it in any information bearing medium. That's your brain, your computer, a song, a fable, a fairy tale, a poem. It doesn't matter. It's information. You can encode it in any number of ways. And it's the first asset in human history that has a perfectly fixed supply. So it's perfected this store of value function where if I hold a thousand Bitcoin, I know with absolute certainty that I have 1000 of a possible 21 million forever. No one can do anything about that. So it's, we've perfected this monetary technology we've been pursuing for, for centuries called money. Um, but it's, it's um, and it's the whole game in a way, like, we, again, we talk about government and all of these different businesses and human organizations. But at the bottom of all of this, they're always, every human organization is a wealth acquisition strategy, full stop. I don't care. I don't care if it's a nonprofit. I don't care if it's your church. I don't care if it's a business. I don't care if it's a nation state. All of them only exist to serve some aim. And that aim is only achievable through the acquisition of wealth, even your church, right? You're giving money to the plate, to the church. What are they trying to do? They're trying to build or expand the church or recruit new members or do some missionary work, right? They're trying to expand their footprint in the world. Well, the expansion of that footprint necessitates wealth. You can't do it without it. You can't be a bunch of cavemen in a church trying to plan a mission trip. It doesn't work. So 
all these games we play, all these stories we tell each other, all these titles, I'm the CEO of that, or I'm the clergyman of this group, they're all reflections of our positioning within a specific wealth acquisition hierarchy. And at the bottom of all this, this is why I call it the base layer operating system of human action is money, right? Gold is the game we've been playing for 5,000 years. It's a tool that's so old, we've forgotten why it's valuable. Everyone knows gold is valuable. Nobody can tell you why. Nobody can tell you the properties of money. Nobody can tell you the history of money. People just know that they work for money and they value money, but they have no idea why. Um, and I view Bitcoin as the single disruption event to gold. Basically, like as, as I said, we've taken, we have developed a technology that perfects the economic properties that gold approximated. And we've delivered it on an open source platform called the internet. And that's what we're going through right now. It's this huge revolution in, in money and property and, and human organization. And um, it's quite an exciting time to be alive, but nobody knows where it leads. Really and what does. would your guess be on that one? Hey, can I, can I go? Okay, sorry, Steve. No, I wanted to go. It seems like we're on this process of decentralization as society, like information. The internet has decentralized information. It's accessible to all. Um, it seems it's happening through many different aspects of society. And it seems cryptocurrency is the same ability to decentralize finances, if you will. And it seems like Bitcoin or one of the other cryptocurrencies is trying to do that. And that seems to be really it, isn't it, in a nutshell? Uh, somewhat. So in Bitcoin circles, at least, decentralized finance has a very negative connotation. Because this, you get outside the scope of Bitcoin into all of these other crypto projects that are trying to decentralize this and that. I want to first say that my... I have a very strong opinion that Bitcoin is the only asset that has achieved actual decentralization. Um, and again, we shouldn't think necessarily in binaries here. It's very convenient to speak in binaries and say Bitcoin's decentralized, nothing else is. It's a continuum, right? Even Bitcoin began as an idea in one guy's head. Satoshi, presumably it's one guy, could have been a team, who knows, that then implemented this project, encouraged people to adopt it, and which led to this organic proliferation of Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin businesses, holders, network effect, value creation, all of that. It has, Bitcoin has progressed from a centralized idea or centralized enterprise to become a decentralized organization such that no opinion or imposition by any one individual or group can change the consensus rules that make Bitcoin operate. Just like no one guy or, or uh, opinion of a group could go and change people voluntarily using HTTP today, right? It's become a protocol standard. And so this is very important because this means that everything else that you hear about, decentralized finance, decentralized voting, decentralized identity, blah, blah, blah. If it's not built on Bitcoin, it's what we call Dino in the Bitcoin space, which is D-I-N-O, decentralized in name only. This is just, it's just bullshit, frankly. Um, and I'm not to say that it's not possible. I, I'm not trying to draw the hard line and say, no, we'll never have any other decentralized 
networks or organizations. Clearly it's possible. We've done it with Bitcoin, but it's extremely difficult to reproduce. There's this path dependence to Bitcoin's emergence, this idiosyncratic sequence of events that you can't repeat, right? If you launch, and I've written about this in the number zero on Bitcoin, but if you try to launch a proof of work competitor to Bitcoin today, you're going to face flack and resistance that simply did not exist when Bitcoin first emerged. Because when Bitcoin first emerged, everyone thought it was a joke, right? No one attacked it. It was like, oh, yeah, right. Magic internet money, my ass. See you in 10 years. And sure enough, Bitcoin grew to be a trillion dollar asset under that, that false sense of confidence by the incumbents. That false sense of confidence does not live anymore, right? If you try to launch Bitcoin 2.0, there are very deep entrenched vested power structures that are aware of the threat Bitcoin poses and would readily squash any, any Bitcoin 2.0 type project. So I draw a bright line between Bitcoin as being this decentralized organization, um, emergent digital money or social institution, and all of the crypto assets, which I view as liquid venture capital. They've done a copy and paste of Bitcoin's code. They're either trying to compete with Bitcoin directly or they're trying to use Bitcoin's code to address other market niches, 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 however you want to say that. And this is two different animals entirely, right? This is, I think it's useful to consider Bitcoin as an extension of the internet itself. The internet grew in these set of open source protocols, this stack, it's got a name, it's called the internet protocol suite. You can look it up. And that stack of open source protocols is useful for permissionlessly moving information around the world, right? You can create a website without asking IBM's permission, for instance. Well, Bitcoin fits right on top of that. And, but instead of letting us move information without permission, it lets us move economic value. So Bitcoin is like an extension of the internet itself. No one controls it. There's no organization that dictates the rules. We've voluntarily, collectively chosen the rules that most favor individual holders. And that's what's established as shelling point of Bitcoin. Whereas everything else, Ethereum all the way down, is controlled by someone or, or some group, right? There's some group that can arbitrarily change the supply, change the rules, roll back the chain, change network consensus, criteria, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, it's not even a comparison, but people get so stuck here. They get so fucking stuck here because again, the world, the recency bias, right? Well, there's 200 nations, 200 currencies. Why not a bunch of cryptocurrencies? Makes sense. But if you don't take the time to actually peer through your own recency bias and get a layer deeper, you're going to get crushed. And most people do get crushed, by the way. You come into Bitcoin, Bitcoin's exciting and interesting. Two months later, you're like, ah, oh, Bitcoin's old technology. This Cardano 2.0 flashy gizmo over here is going to be the next Bitcoin or whatever narrative you've ingested, right? There's a lot of bullshit narratives out there where people are trying to tell you we're the next Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. Well, people eat that and then they become lost, frankly. <laughs> then they lose a bunch of money. They'll go through a full market cycle. They'll see these coins collapse 99.9%. They'll see Bitcoin continue to survive and appreciate against all other currencies. Hopefully they survive you know, with enough health and wealth intact to learn their lesson and become a Bitcoin. I don't want to say Bitcoin maximalist, but because um, I don't believe in being dogmatic, 
but I think you'll come to see that Bitcoin is just in a league of its own, essentially. Good. And what about what about the future? When you roll this into the future, because you said we are on a 50-year experiment now with fiat currencies, like, and they're inevitably all going to reach zero. So as part of that kind of statement and you being such an advocate and proponent of Bitcoin, where do you see it going? Do you see like the future being kind of built on Bitcoin? Yeah, you know, we, this is a very, quite a historic event. You know, we've never had any technology that actually offered the possibility of separating money and state. Again, across history, the monopoly on violence in virtually all instances has always monopolized the money as a means of soft power and coercion control over people. Uh, gives you inordinate political leverage, right? If you control the money supply, this is like, this is an old Rothschild quote that says, Give me the power to issue a nation's currency and I care not who makes its laws. I mean, money is power. It's raw power, right? It's a call option on anything anyone can do anywhere, right? It's incredibly powerful. It's the most important tool there is for, for human civilization. Full stop, no question. Um, the problem has always been that we've dealt with physical monies and monies that have mass and exist in physical space are vulnerable to physical coercion and violence. And in that way, gold has been, you know, it's been a remarkable step forward in a number of ways and that we can preserve a lot of economic property in a small space, right? We can, I'm sorry, a lot of economic value in a small space. So this is a highly securable form of wealth that can, uh, that we can accumulate intergenerationally even. You can accumulate gold intergenerationally. It doesn't break down. But the, the Achilles heel of the gold standard is that because gold is physical, it can still be violently stolen or coerced or taken, right? It's, it's If I break into your house and I find your gold, I don't need to negotiate with you to take your gold. I just kill you and take your gold. And that's it. And I move on. I, I go and do it again. Bitcoin is fundamentally different, right? I've written about this a lot and talked about it a lot, that if you custody it properly, and this is beyond the scope of this discussion, but you can just Google it to learn more, specifically in a geographically distributed multi-signature wallet, it is a form of money and property that cannot be taken away, even voluntarily. You break into my house, you put a gun to my head, you tell me, give me the keys to your Bitcoin. I can't give you the keys to my Bitcoin because it's in a geographically distributed multi-signature custody arrangement. I can't even give it to you if I want to give it to you. Even, my, my, even if I abdicate on my Viktor Frankl final human freedom and say, oh, I'm scared, I'm gonna give these guys my keys, I cannot do it. I physically don't have the ability to do it if I've custodied it properly. That's incredibly important because what does that do? It shrinks the carrot to violence and coercion. Right, where today we can go to war with a country, spend a shitload of money doing it, but we know that as long as we're victorious, we can extract tribute from that country, we can confiscate their property, we can steal their gold, we can, you know, et cetera, et cetera. On in a Bitcoin standard, that whole value proposition becomes is drastically lessened because you can't steal their money, right? When when uh, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. What is the first thing they did after they invaded Poland? 
Went for the gold, gold, I imagine. Straight to the central bank. Raid the gold, right? We just spent a shitload of money taking over this country. We now need to pay our bills. So go get the gold out of the central bank and start paying the bills, right? Imagine had Poland been on a Bitcoin standard and presumably the central bank would have had good security protocol and put it in a multi-sig custody schema. Nazi Germany would have stopped right there. They would have conquered Poland. They would have been unable to pay the bills of conquering them and they would have been over. War over, just like that. So this is another critical, critical point. To choose to hold your savings in Bitcoin is to vote against large scale and long duration warfare. Because when you hold your savings in Bitcoin, you're effectively forcing a nation state that wants to wage war to wage war from the confines of its own balance sheet. So it has to go out and raise the money to go to war. I need to go door to door now, citizen A, citizen B. Hey, here's your $50,000 tax bill for the war in Afghanistan. Do you want, do you want to pay this um, or borrow, right? Hey, please buy my wartime bond. We're going to war to, to you know, say to, this is where some bullshit narrative comes into play to save the motherland or to save our people or to redeem equality and justice. When in fact, as I said earlier, all human organizations are businesses. This includes states. States are a business, the only business that do not derive their revenues from mutual voluntary exchange, but rather through coercion, compulsion, and violence. So there's nothing that can hold that business enterprise in check so long as coercion is profitable. Bitcoin makes coercion much less profitable by shrinking the carrot to violence and coercion. And so that is why it is so important. And I call this, I call Bitcoin like at its most fundamental level, a humanitarian movement. If I'm holding my savings in Bitcoin, I'm voting against warfare. I'm voting against fiat. I'm voting against anyone ever being told what to do. I'm voting for voluntary free exchange. I'm voting for free self-expression. I'm voting for human ingenuity and my fellow man, right? Because here's the other weird thing about Bitcoin is once I hold a share of this money and it's a fixed, again, a fixed fraction of the total available money supply and money reflects a call option on the global capital stock. Well, once I'm holding Bitcoin, I now have an incentive to not only tell everyone in the world about it, like, hey, guys, this is better money. I'm going to outcompete you. You should probably think about adopting this too. But I also have an incentive to see everyone succeed. I want people now to be smarter and create more valuable businesses and create more wealth in the world and create more education because that creates more capital stock and more wealth, which means it's more, I have more wealth. The more successful you are on a Bitcoin standard, the more wealthy I am. Because it's deflation. And that is in, yeah, well, but these turn, like throw that shit out, throw inflationary, deflationary out because this is, these are euphemisms given to us by the central bank. Okay. Deflationary means your your money goes up in purchasing power. It's monetary enrichment versus monetary debasement. I don't like. I I know we're stuck in inflation deflation euphemism land, but inflation's horrible. Inflation's stuffed. Deflation means the economy's working and prices are going down. We're becoming smarter, better, faster at making things. That's what we want, right? We want price deflation which I would just say is uh, economization itself. The big monkey on the back to this whole process of 
of free market proliferation and the advancement of civilization is the state, right? We And maybe I could leave it on this point. So if your effective tax rate is 100%, then you are by definition a slave. Everything that you do, all the products of your labor, all the sweat of your brow, all the every ounce of energy you expend to create anything of value in the world is taken from you, right? 100% taxation. That's literally how you define a slave. There's no other way to define it, actually. So if your effective tax rate is 0% on the other end of the spectrum, then you're fully sovereign. You have the authority to act as you see fit. You keep all the fruits of your labor. You are totally free. So ask yourself today, what is your effective tax rate? If you're in the West, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 40%, depending on your income bracket. Well, that's what percentage of a slave you are. So, and this sounds extreme. People are like, ah, oh, what are you doing? It's like too, uh, I don't like the way it sounds. I'm like, just open a history book. We've literally been contending with slavery since the beginning of time. Human beings coerce one another. It's just what we do, right? It's, it's Darwinian in a sense, but but we've made progress, right? We've gotten away from the visceral balls and chain and gun in your face type of slavery. And now we've created this invisible form of slavery. It's taxation without representation. We skim just a little bit from everybody. Um, you know, it's watered down. You're not hundred percent a slave. You're everyone's kind of a 20 or 30% slave, but all of that is dissipative to aggregate wealth creation. So we are, we're shackling ourselves. Humanity is shackling themselves by not evolving beyond this institution of slavery. And I think statism itself is like the final, the final evolution of slavery that we need to contend with and get past. We have to end taxation totally, totally and fully worldwide. And Bitcoin is a great step in that direction by eliminating inflation as a revenue option for governments. It forces governments now to go to their people to try and raise money to do things versus just steal from them. And it at least gives people the visibility, right? To see the actual explicit tax bill coming their way or the request for borrowing that a government's making to do a certain thing versus people just, versus preying on the ignorance of people of money where you just print money and steal from them in inflation. And then prices are going up and then governments get plausible deniability. Like, oh, it's not my fault. It's that greedy meat producer. And it's the greedy gas station clerk. That's why you're all, you're all, all the prices are going up. It has nothing to do with the central bank. So it's like, it's a giant hidden in plain sight scam that destroys civilization itself. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, again, open a fucking history book. Show me where civilization does not boom and bust based on the integrity of money. It's the only thing that's true across human history. So I'll rest my case. Great job. Wow. Fascinating. Thank you. What an education. I really don't have any experience to even really comment on what you said. I think it sounds phenomenal. It really does. And I I look forward to a future where there's more sovereignty for us all. Yeah. You just, it's a vote, right? You just hold your savings in Bitcoin and you vote for that future. And then With that skin in the game, again, you have the incentive to educate and see others succeed. 
And I think that is the cultural dynamic you'll identify in the Bitcoin community. It's like, there's a lot of people that have been through this intellectual gauntlet, been through the pain of trying to trade Bitcoin or outperform it or whatever. And you end up in this place where the strategy is very simple. It's like you just keep buying Bitcoin and never sell it, right? With the aim of never selling it. And then you educate others about all of these topics. You know, this is, this is the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So I'm very grateful to be working in this space. I'm very grateful that people have found value in my work and um, it's allowed me to become a full-time student of this, this, uh, this battle, you know, we've had this battle and it's a battle within ourselves, within, within the psyche of humanity of trying to overcome coercion itself. So um, thank you guys for having me on and oh, you're phenomenal. You know, I, hope- I, I adore listening to you. Yeah, really. Genuine. Was, I took nice. notes after a while. I gave up on the conversation and just took notes because it was just, <laughs> there was so much gold coming out. Or should I say, uh, Bitcoin, really? You have a, you're a phenomenal speaker in that you can link anthropology, economics, sociology, history, economics. But it all came back to the root. Like you said, everything was built on, you know, money is at the root of every organization. And ultimately, the current monetary system is completely flawed and bitcoin is the new savior yeah it's i think you know as we said about health and wealth you know they're fundamental to life well lived and that desire for you know wealth in particular can lead you down an immoral path right there's there's a there's a viable wealth acquisition strategy called taking I don't need to work really if I can just take your stuff, right? You can go work, create a bunch of value and I'll just take it. Well, that's a wealth acquisition strategy. The other one is making, right? The one that we prefer to have in the world where everyone's just creating some kind of value, hopefully something they're good at and trading with everyone else. Everyone's self-owned, right? Versus enslaved. That's a much more wealthy civilization. And I think that you could just very simply look at Bitcoin as something that's closing the window on taking as a wealth acquisition strategy. And if taking is closed, then you don't have any other option than to go render some value to your fellow man. Go do something productive that other people value. Because that's the only way you're going to get wealthy in a Bitcoin world. Brilliant. That was brilliant. Where can people learn more? I know you've written a book. um, Thank God for Bitcoin. And And your your podcast is phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I co-authored the book, Thank God for Bitcoin, with a group of seven others. Um, you can find that on Amazon. I would say the best place to find out about me is just go to Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at breedlove22. That's B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. I've got links to the What Is Money podcast there. I've got links to my link tree, which has links to the book and my other writings, my newsletter. Uh, my newsletter is titled The Freedom Analyx. So I put out like one to two issues a week exploring these topics in depth. And um, yeah, come see me in Miami. I'll be at Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through 9th in Miami. It's the biggest Bitcoin conference of the year. Last year was amazing. I basically got mobbed with love for a week straight. Amazing. <laughs> and it was one of the best experiences of my life. So I'm Looking forward to that again this year. And um, yeah, you can DM me on Twitter. You know, 
bear with me. I, I get hundreds of DMS probably a day at this point. I don't, I try to respond to a lot of them, but I don't get to all of them. Um, but yeah, this is, I consider this to be my life's work, just trying to educate people and wake people up from the realities of, of statism. Wow. You're amazing. Thanks so much. For Thanks, man. That was brilliant. I loved listening to you. Thank you so much, guys. I'm really, really glad you found it valuable. Happy yeah, to do it, was, it again sometime. The, the, the last line I wrote there was, uh, I wrote in caps letters, we really need to understand more about money. And that was me and Steve. That was my, that was my last note I took. to Robert's podcast. <laughs> what is money? Jesus, yeah, I know. Our money like an hour into the one with, uh, you know, the, the Sailor series, which is 17 hours. And a good friend of ours has listened to it three times now. So 17 hours, three times. He said, I just went through it once, went through it again, went through it again. So yeah, he said that was essential listening. Yeah, it, I mean, Sailor, I think he delivers the message better than anyone. And if you... Again, I don't take any credit from that series. I just sort of got lucky that I had this idea of talking to people for a long time about the question, what is money? And then at that, when I was ideating the show, Sailor came on the scene and bought, I think he bought initially 500 million in Bitcoin. And now he's got, I think he's bought 3 billion total. And I just invited him on. I'm like, hey, do you want to be my first guest? You know, he made this splash in the Bitcoin universe. And I had no idea what I was in for. Like he, um, it's amazing. You know, clearly I'm biased, but pe- the feedback on it has been hands down the best Bitcoin content on earth. Like hands down, not even close. Because he starts like in the beginning, right? What is technology? What is Back energy? Fire, what is anthropology? Yeah. yeah, and he's just building it layer by layer. I don't even think we talk about Bitcoin until five or six hours into the series. <laughs> so it's like a 20-hour series. We're not even talking about Bitcoin until hour six. And even then it's just a little bit. And then we get into Bitcoin heavily later. So it is, it's an MIT master's thesis on YouTube, basically. Brilliant. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that was wonderful. You're, Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. And, um, Powerful. Come visit us again in Ireland and we'd love to we'd have love you on to again. again. Yeah. We'll once do we, our, once we, we learn yeah. more. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, feel free to ask me for some book recommendations. I'll, uh, on DM or email, I'll send you guys uh, some recommendations. You know, it's all it's all out there. Just gotta get through. Gotta it. Well, we start with the Sailor series. A lot. Sailor series is a good start. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, but, Mel. Robert, really appreciate it. Have a great day, yeah, guys. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. That was great. Jeez, enlightening. I definitely have My a huge amount of homework to do. My mind is blown. And if you made it this far, you must be interested because I guess it crossed so many aspects of monetary systems and economics and globalization. And there were so many issues Philosophy, that sociology, anthropology. Fascinating. My mind is definitely blown. It's lit. I've had an interest in cryptocurrencies for a long while and uh, it's kind of really exacerbated that. Yeah. Scratch that itch. Yeah, that Massively. was brilliant. Yeah, I hope you really enjoyed that. If you did really enjoy that, please share it on Instagram stories. We'll reshare. And if you did enjoy this, this is the first conversation we've had on crypto. If you want us to do more in this space, please let us know. And uh, yeah, wishing you a wonderful day. Oh, and Thanks. if you do want to support this podcast, one thing that you can do is pre-order our new book, please. Uh, it's called The Veg Box. You can pre-order it now. We'll put a link down in our show notes. Uh, it'll come out in June and we've taken the 10 most popular veg. We're cooking them 10 ways with 10 ingredients or less. So it's a great way of getting you to use all your veg. Uh, learn how to cook amazing plant-based foods, which would be healthier for you, healthier for the planet, and reduce food waste. So, boom, link down below. Yeah, thanks a million. Bye, 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 b